What's up, guys? Welcome back to the Daily Bible Reading Snapshot podcast, where in week number three, we jump right into the middle of the book of Genesis as we read the origin story of the people of Israel. And that's just one thing I want you to keep in mind this week as you read. Never forget who wrote this book, who it's written to, and what it's written for. Right? Why did God have the book of Genesis be delivered this way to the people of Israel? Well, remember, they're in the wilderness. Moses is leading them out. Moses is the spokesperson for God, and he's taking a nation out of another nation into this land that's not really a nation full of a bunch of little nation states with little kings and stuff, and he's going to set up one nation in that land. Why is an origin story important? Well, because it's going to give context for who they are. So remember, as we jump into the middle of this book, we've read about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In the very first chapter, you're going to read that, you know, Abraham had a lot of sons. I know we sing that song in Sunday school, but not just all of the people who believe by faith. That's not what I'm talking about. Abraham had a lot of descendants that were not Israelites. And we're going to read a little bit about that at the beginning here as we start reading in Genesis 36. But I want you to notice that it's not just Genesis 36 that's important for you to understand that there's a lot of sons. I want you to think, how is God tracing the lineage of God's people from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob all the way through Jacob's sons, Joseph and his brothers and and all those people? So that's really what this section is about. If you were to summarize it in one word or one character, it's the character Joseph, right? That's what we're going to be reading about. He takes over the story starting in Genesis 37. He's really the main character all the way until the end of the book in Genesis 50. So it's cool how this is all broken up because this week, all we really focus on is God's dealings with this man named Joseph. And a couple of important key verses for you to remember as we read One of the first ones comes at the end in chapter 50, kind of a summary statement that comes from Joseph to his brothers about his whole life story. It has to do with this, the fact that the brothers of Joseph obviously had evil intentions when they sold him into slavery and do all the bad things you're going to read about this week. But Joseph, being the righteous person that he is, understanding God the way he does, he looks to God and he understands that God is sovereign over his whole life and over his whole story and circumstance and whatever word you want to use for it, God was doing something good for his people. And not just for Joseph, but for all the people that would be identified with the Israelites because God brought the Israelites into Egypt through Joseph and God was going to lead them out through Moses later on. Here's what Joseph says. He says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Think about that. That literally means the the evil that was done towards Joseph. God meant that evil thing that was ordained by God, he meant that for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So that's a really very important verse in theology. It's a very important verse in our understanding of God and his dealings with the world. But we actually get a little preview of that earlier in the book. In Genesis 45, when Joseph is first talking to his brothers as Joseph, not just as some foreign official that that doesn't know them. When he first introduces himself as Joseph, Joseph says, hey, brothers, don't worry. This is Genesis 45, 7. says, God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all of his house 
and ruler over all the land of Egypt. So Joseph's life is a total roller coaster, but what he recognizes through it all is that God was sovereignly leading his life and preparing the way for him and using all of the hard circumstances that Joseph finds himself in. God was in charge of all that. And because of that, he doesn't hold a bitterness towards his brothers that you might expect. So as you read, like we said, his life is a roller coaster, kind of like his dad's life, right? We read about Jacob last week. And if you understand the life of Jacob, there's a lot of ups and downs, good moments, bad moments, moments of victory, moments of defeat. Joseph's life is similar, except for the fact that Joseph acts in a constant faithful way where Jacob was doing good and then he was doing bad. So Jacob goes up and down in his character while his life goes up and down. Joseph, his life goes up and down too, but his character remains solid. We don't see him make any big mistakes. We don't see him deceive people. We don't see him uh, trick anybody like Jacob does. So it's just interesting as we read about Joseph, you're going to notice some things about him. One thing you're going to notice is everywhere that Joseph goes, it's successful, right? Every job he has, he does a good job at it. Everything he manages, it goes well. The same language is used when it talks about how he went to the house of Potiphar. Potiphar wasn't worried about anything under his charge. He was just worried about the food that he was eating is the technical, that's the exact quote. Then it says the same thing about the jailer. When Joseph finds himself in jail, the jailer put everything in Joseph's charge and he didn't worry about anything. And then guess what? When Pharaoh has Joseph work for him, same thing. He's not even concerned about anything because he just trusts Joseph. It's it's also a very good lesson for us. You know, if you're a faithful follower of God, you're going to be trustworthy. And that doesn't just, you know, contain itself in your religious sphere of life. That overflows to every sphere of life. If you're a person who's faithful to do what God wants you to do, chances are you're going to be faithful in, in all those things. Jesus even tells us about that in Luke 17. So a couple other things you're going to notice. You're going to see a lot of dreams. It's interesting. You're going to see Joseph's dream, then the cup baker, and the cup bearer and the baker, not a cup baker. I don't know how you bake a cup. I guess that's ceramics class, right? But you got a cup bearer and a baker. They both have dreams. And then Pharaoh has dreams. One thing you're going to notice about all these is that they are very similar because they have symbolic things or animals that do certain things. You know, the cows eat each other and certain stacks of grain bow down to others. And it's all representative of something. And God is like speaking through these dreams and he gives the interpretation, right? So in, in two out of the three of those cases, Joseph already had the interpretation. Even in the first one, we may think that Joseph had a little bit of the interpretation because his dad and his brothers ask, are we really going to bow down to you one day, Joseph? So as you read that, just notice there's a lot of dreams. There's a lot of management. Um, and one really cool thing I want to show you that I think we miss if we don't do what we're doing right now, which is get an overview of the whole week. One thing that's easy to miss is the connection that's made at the end of Genesis 37 and the, the connection that picks up at the beginning of Genesis 39. So Genesis 38, the, the thing that's sandwiched between is the story of Judah and Tamar. And then the story of Genesis 39 is the story of Joseph and Potiphar's wife. And it's important to look back to Genesis 37 to see how the story is set up. It's set up by saying that Joseph goes to Potiphar and he works there in Egypt. And it happened at that same time Judah, and then it tells the story of Judah, which we get a lot of information about Judah and his family and how he has kids and what his kids are like. But 
Then the real problem is where we see Judah having an immoral relationship with Tamar, which is meant to show you, as you read the next chapter, Judah fails where Joseph succeeds. That is in God's eyes. Judah is tempted with sexual immorality, and now it's not the same way that Joseph will be. There's a lot of contrasts here, right? One of these people seeks out sexual sin. That's Judah. The other is sought out by someone else and fights off temptation. That's Joseph. One of these people hypocritically judges another person while the other person in the other story, Joseph, is wrongly accused and judged for a sin that he did not commit. So as you read these two stories side by side, I want you to see one succeeds, another fails. One does right, another does wrong, which frankly should make us all think what kind of a character are we when it comes to God and his rules, and especially when it comes to sexual sin. Are we like Joseph or are we like Judah? Are we running away from sin or are we running to sin? Very important for us to think through. After that, as you know, Joseph will go into jail because he's accused of a major crime. While in jail, like we said before, he interprets these dreams for these two men and he is not let out of jail immediately, but there comes a time where Pharaoh has a dream and you know what? That former employee of Pharaoh remembers, oh, I used to be in jail at one point. And there was a guy who knows how to interpret dreams, or at least his God does. So Joseph interprets Pharaoh's dreams, which all lead to this big famine that takes place, which this didn't seem to be a local famine. This seemed to be a pretty widespread famine, which I guess scholars can debate on why this famine took place the way it did, uh, usually because of some kind of drought. But the point is, there's no food, and people need food to survive. And same thing with Jacob and his sons. They need food, so the people from Canaan travel down to Egypt, down south to Egypt, and they encounter Joseph. So this is that scene where the brothers of Joseph show up into Egypt, and they have no idea that the person they're talking to is their brother, that they sold into slavery. It's their brother that they treated wrong, and that really any fleshly person would say, I'm going to take revenge on these brothers who ruined my life. But as we talked about before, that wasn't Joseph's mentality. He trusted God even through the evil that was done to him. And this leads to that scene where Joseph tests his brothers, which really you should consider, why would he test his brothers like this? It almost seems like there's a little bit of deception going on, right? Why does he not immediately say, hey, it's Joseph, you know, I'm your brother. He'll get to that at one point, but he doesn't do that initially. I think one of the reasons is because he is testing his brothers when it comes to Benjamin, right? Do they treat Benjamin like they treated him? Are they envious of Benjamin and the love that Jacob certainly has for Benjamin that is probably more and over the top for this younger son? Are they jealous? Are they envious like they were of me? That's what Joseph must have been thinking. So they, he puts them to the test. And the test is, are you going to let Benjamin take the fall? So Joseph basically frames Benjamin of crimes that he didn't commit, and it's all to see, what are these brothers going to do about all this? And the good news is Judah, in particular, and his other brothers step up, and they want to protect Benjamin. Notice even how the brothers are described. It's very interesting. In Genesis 44, when Judah stands up and is willing to give his life for Benjamin— the brothers are introduced as Judah and his brothers, which is just so important for the future of Israel. Remember, the people of Israel received this. Judah will take the lead. And there's a lot more reasons for that we'll get into in a minute. But just notice, as we read this, Judah and Jacob take a prominent role. 
And then what takes place is the people will all rejoin because Jacob is told, hey, your, your son's alive. And they, they meet up and it's just amazing. They have a reunion. There says there's a lot of weeping going on. And then in Genesis 46 and 47, Joseph says, you guys got to come down here and come to Egypt to survive this. So they live in the land of Goshen, which remember, this is a book of origin stories. If you are a kid who grows up as a Hebrew slave in Egypt, who grows to adulthood, who leaves during the Exodus, you want to know how did we get here? Why are we this nation of Hebrew people in the midst of Egypt, even though we're not Egyptians and we live in this weird place and really we don't do much intermarriage with the Egyptians, why is this the way that it is? Well, Genesis 46 and 47 answer that question. And then just uh, two chapters that are so overlooked that really it'd be good for us to spend more time on. We don't have a ton of time to do it today, but Genesis 48 and 49, the blessings that Jacob pronounces over his sons are so significant. Now, they're kind of mysterious and uh, it takes some work to understand what he's getting at with all these blessings. But I want you to see, especially Genesis 49, it's a chapter all about prophecy. It's really God speaking through Jacob to say what kind of tribes these sons will father and that they will lead to. So some key figures you're going to see, Reuben, the first one, uh, he's the firstborn. He should have got the blessing of leadership and a double portion. That's how it worked back then. The firstborn would usually get a double portion of the inheritance. And the thing is, Reuben sends that away. And, and Jacob describes that. He says, Reuben sent it away by uh, having an affair with Bilhah, and that was wrong. And then we also see Simeon and Levi, they're next in line. Well, maybe they're going to get the leadership and the blessing. Well, they send it away too. And the way that they killed all the men of Shechem that we read about last week. So Jacob says, you're going to be scattered, right? And we see that played out in history when Simeon, this tribe that should have a land allotment, they don't technically get a land allotment the way that everybody else does. They end up inhabiting 17 cities that are spread all throughout the territory of Judah. So they're spread out. And Levi, same thing. If you know the story of the Levites, they become the priests. They don't have a land allotment. They get spread out as they work as priests all throughout the land. So these prophecies might not be received as such as we just read them really quickly. It's like, oh, this is just what a dad is predicting about his kids. It's more than that. God has promises that won't come true. Some of them won't come true for hundreds of years. Remember when these promises are made. It should just blow your mind. These promises are made in the time of Jacob, but when are they being written down? Well, 400 years later in the time of Moses, when do they come true? Well, a couple hundred years later in the time of Joshua, and most of them come true in the time of the judges as the people settle down. So, you see Zebulun, who ends up having an inheritance by the Mediterranean Sea, which again, if I'm an Israelite leaving the land of Egypt, I don't know that yet, right? Th this is not obvious, and this isn't just something we're like, oh, I understand exactly what this means. If I'm an Israelite receiving this book, I'm like, I don't know what this is all about. This is forward, future-looking prophecy. We see Issachar, he's going to be a productive and knowledgeable tribe. We see Dan is going to be like a fierce serpent. We see Gad will be oppressed. He ends up taking land where the Ammonites and the Moabites live. So that comes true exactly as is predicted. Uh, Asher is going to be a tribe that produces a lot of agriculture in Israel, exactly as promised here. Naphtali is a kind of a confusing one. Uh, most scholars think that because Naphtali is in the land of Galilee, same area, there's this idea of beautiful words will come from Naphtali. 
And, you know, if you're thinking, where beautiful words, where do those come from? Well, perhaps this could be looking all the way forward to Jesus, where the good news of Jesus comes from a place called Galilee in the land of Naphtali. And then the big, most important two to take note of are Judah and Joseph. Judah gets the leadership that Reuben forfeited, and Joseph gets the double portion. Joseph has two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, which really become two different tribes and two of the biggest tribes. So again, if I'm an Israelite hearing this for the first time, I have not seen this all come true yet. This is going to be worked out in history. So it's one of those cool things that we can read about now from our perspective, seeing that this predictive prophecy that God carries out in his plan as he works it out in history. So a book recommendation for you on this, I had a professor at the Master's University who taught Old Testament survey and Messianic prophecy and all these other classes. His name is Dr. Will Varner. He wrote a little book called Jacob's Dozen, a prophetic look at the tribes of Israel, which is a very, very interesting book. It's all about the tribes and their histories, and it's a really short book. You could read it in an afternoon. So that leads us to our New Testament reading, which is Matthew 12, 13, 14, and the beginning of chapter 15, where, again, Matthew is showing us the superiority of Jesus. He's showing that Jesus is greater than the Sabbath. He's fulfilling prophecy like that in Isaiah 42. He is teaching authoritatively about the heart. I mean, one of the most important couple of verses on this are in Matthew 12, 34, and 35, where Jesus calls these people a brood of vipers. He says, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. Now, this is authoritative. This is so important for our understanding of humanity, for your understanding of your own self and the people around you. Then in chapter 13, we start to see speech number three. Remember the five speeches in the Gospel of Matthew. The first one is the Sermon on the Mount. The second one is about missions on in chapter 10. And then chapter 13 is the parables, particularly the parables of the kingdom. Now, a lot of people get tricked up when they think of the parables. They think they're cute little stories that Jesus tells to make things easier for uneducated people to understand. But the way that Jesus describes them is that the parables are actually judgment on the people who are unwilling to listen. So parables are not meant to make things easier to understand. They're actually meant to obscure the truth from people who don't care and the people who don't believe. So as you read a couple things to take note of, there are some patterns you'll notice about the parables of the kingdom. First of all, it shows that there are different responses to Jesus and the gospel. Not everyone takes it the same way. I mean, you already see that in the gospel of Matthew, but that's going to be a pattern in these parables. Another pattern you're going to see is there's some kind of time period where people respond to Jesus and the gospel. There's a time period. And then another pattern that you're going to see is that there's some thing that happens at the end. There's a harvest. There's a judgment. There's a separation. There's a time of testing or something at the end that separates people. And then another pattern you're going to see is there's some kind of kingdom that is a perfect place that is supposed to be forward-oriented. Like, we're looking forward to this. So those are just four things that you're going to see in a lot of parables. One very important verse to take note of in Matthew 13, when we see Jesus go back to his hometown, it says he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. We see the same thing last week in the reading in Matthew, that 
Jesus doesn't want to openly teach about himself to people who are unwilling to listen. That's not the pattern. The pattern is who are the people who want to respond rightly to Jesus? They're the ones that are going to be given more information and more light. So in chapter 14 and 15, we see Jesus continue to do miracles. Uh, one of the miracles he does is he provides food for them, just like God did with manna in the wilderness. Then he's walking on water, calming a storm. Again, just like God did in the Exodus when he made the people pass through the waters and he was able to be in control over nature. When Jesus comes along and does the same things, his people should be saying, wow, this is our God. This is the person who has been prophesied about. This is the one who's doing all the God things that we saw done in the Old Testament. Then in chapter 15, Jesus has kind of a showdown with the Pharisees. He's going to do that a couple more times in the Gospel of Matthew. But the conversation basically surrounds where Jesus says in Matthew 15, 3, why do you break the commandments of God? for the sake of your tradition. So the Pharisees were accusing Jesus of doing certain things wrong and not doing certain things right. And Jesus says, no, 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 you guys have it backwards. You think that your rules and just the way you do things are the same thing as the commandments of God. You break the commandments of God for the sake of your traditions. Yeah, Pharisees can be good Pharisees, quote unquote good, by keeping their own rules. That doesn't make them good or righteous. What makes a person good or righteous is keeping the commandments of God from the heart, just like we read in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus makes that very clear. So some people look at this passage and say, oh, all this is trying to say is God doesn't care about the rules. He just kind of cares about where your heart is. Well, notice what he says about your heart, right? The fact that you keep the rules or don't keep the rules of God, that shows where your heart is. So we're not saying, hey, God doesn't care about the rules. We're saying God cares about God's rules. He cares a lot less about the rules that people impose on you that have nothing to do with God's rules. So again, one painful lesson that you learn from this is sometimes, like the Pharisees, there are people who make bad rules that following those bad rules make it really hard to actually obey the word of God. So we have to be people who are always looking at doing what God says, even if people may disagree, and even if people and their sensibilities or their traditions or their rules don't agree. If it's something that we got to do because God says it, it's something we got to do because God is our judge in all these things. And Jesus comes to share that with us in vivid detail here in Matthew chapter 15. So you're going to read a lot this week. Hopefully this gets you excited to read God's word as you look forward to the week that God has in store for you. Of course, we want to be reading every day in our Bibles. Hopefully you're reading or listening and not just listening to this podcast and saying, yeah, I got my fill of Bible reading. That's not how this is designed. So I want you to be reading every day and giving yourself to the Lord through prayer and asking God to show you wondrous things in his law. So we'll pray for you to have a good week and we'll see you back next time for another daily Bible reading snapshot podcast. 